0: At least that's what I thought. Leader of his church, leader of a national ministry. uh, And he came out, told everyone he had committed adultery. Then a year later, he was accused of sexually abusing a teenage girl. Ministry just wiped out. Church kicked him out. When I heard it, I felt like I was kicked in the gut. Because he was the guy that I was, for a period of my life, I was modeling my life after him. I wanted an internship underneath him. Don't know if that's ever happened to you. It's hard when it happens, very hard. Many people in the Southern Baptist denomination are going through those experiences right now. I don't know if any of you are following what's happening in that denomination. But there are a lot of tears, a lot of questions. There are a lot of people who are leaving the faith because people that they looked up to who declared themselves as godly men have done horrible things. And so many of these allegations listed against these prominent pastors are turning out to be true, which is heartbreaking. Unfortunately, we are all humans. Every single one of us are humans. We all have the ability to sin. We all have the ability and we're all have placed in situations where sin could be so easy. Easy. And in fact, sometimes sin is very attractive. It doesn't mean, it's not just sexual sin, but all sorts of sins. They're easy to do and they're attractive to do. In the case of my hero and all of these prominent pastors in the Southern Baptist, these men were placed on a pedestal up above everyone else. They were looked up to with this shining light on these holy men and they were removed from accountability because they were placed up on this pedestal. When we as humans are placed on a pedestal and removed from accountability, we forget how we are to live. We do. If you sit in my membership class for Calvary Bible Church, and come fall, later this fall, we'll have another round of those classes, you will hear me say that Calvary Bible Church does not have a hierarchy We don't have different levels of membership where we have everyone in the pews, then you have the deacons and the elders and all on top, like icing on the cake, his high and mighty Mr. Eminence, the pastor. It's not the way it is. We are all the same. We need each other. I need you to hold me accountable. You need me and each other to hold you accountable. To fight the sin that so easily entangles us. To push each other to live the life of following Jesus Christ. When a pastor is removed from accountability, bad things happen. When a church stops holding each other accountable, not just the pastor but each other, when we stop feeling that, that gut punch about someone else's sin, bad things happen. The Corinthian church got to this point. They forgot who they were, who God had called them to be, how Paul had described them back at the very beginning of the letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, when Paul said to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. The Corinthians, along with all of us, are called to be holy, God's holy people, even as God is holy. But they were not living that way. They weren't. Let's see what Paul says about these Corinthians who forgot what it meant to have a gut punch about someone else's sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, that's his stepmom, And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sanctifi- sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But I am writing you now to to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it, of, uh, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. God calls his church, those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, to holiness. He wants to set us apart from the wickedness around us so that those outside us see something different so that they can see God shining through us. Calvary Bible Church, God wants us to be holy. Will you pray with me? Father, oh Lord, this is a hard passage because it calls us to be more than what we are. Father, thank you that you are the holy God. You are set above all of the wickedness here in this world you are so holy that you are the one that drives wickedness away and you call us to follow you in that Father some days it is really hard and there's some days we don't know how to follow you in that holiness but thank you that you are the one that when you call us for something you are the one who equips us for that You are the one who strengthens us for that and you throw open the doors wide for us to walk through in that way. And you give us a little kick on the way too. Father, I ask today as we study your word of what it means to be holy and follow you in holiness, that you would open up our minds and our hearts to understand and you would give us the desire to understand and follow you in that. Lord, you know that I'm tired, really tired today. So I ask that you would strengthen me for this sermon and that you would use me. Lord, may I decrease and may you increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Two weeks ago, before Father's Day, we talked about discipline. We said that spiritual leaders, as well as fathers, must discipline the ungodliness around them. But when we do it, we must discipline out of sincerity and out of love. During that sermon, I asked the question, what does that mean in a church? And I said I wouldn't answer it then. I was going to answer it when we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Well, here we are at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What does it mean for spiritual leaders, a church, to discipline the ungodliness in their midst. Paul talks about this discipline and he outlines three steps for this discipline. Because of the holiness that we as a church are to have, there are three steps that we must take when there is sin in our midst. First, God calls us to holiness, so we mourn. God calls us to holiness. So we mourn. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter five verses one to two. First Corinthians chapter five verses one to two. He says, It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? The American Church, we are steeped in a society of freedom. The, the culture of the 1960s and 70s has just gotten more and more and more amplified as the decades have ticked by, that now everything is celebrated. If it feels good, you do it. Follow your heart. What is your desire? Fulfill it. All these phrases that we throw around to allow us to do whatever we want to do. And we live among that culture. And when we live among a culture that is flippant towards sin, unfortunately, the church can start becoming calloused to that sin. When that happens, people who declare themselves as followers of Jesus Christ start living like the world around, because that's what is normal. In a world that says premarital sex is okay, pretty soon people in the church start following that. And then pretty soon, not just people in the church, but the pastors and priests start following that too, because it's just what is done. Our culture and the struggles in our church, what we're living through today, is very similar to what Paul is living through in the church in Corinth. It's like mirroring each other. If you remember how I described the The Corinthian, the city there in Corinth, the first day we started studying it, we we talked about the temple to Aphrodite there that employed 1,000 prostitutes. And part of the worship to this goddess was going through these sexual acts. Immorality was so ingrained in what people thought uh, in Corinth that Greek literature started coining phrase about it. Uh, Plato would refer to a prostitute as a Corinthian girl, no matter where she was. Another writer talked about doing Corinth for fornication because this was so much part of their culture. Well, that city was destroyed by Rome, and 100 years later, Julius Caesar comes in, builds it back up. It becomes a place of cultural and religious pluralism. Everything was okay there. We don't have any evidence of that specific temple being rebuilt, but we know know that the worship to Aphrodite was still happening at shrines all throughout the city. So instead of going to a temple to worship her in this gross, immoral way, you just went to your local street corner and did it. In front of everyone. Immorality was exalted along with all sorts of other sins. The Corinth of Paul's day is described as a mixture of New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. It was not a good place to be. If you were there and you were married, you were expected not to be faithful to your wife. In fact, what was expected is that you would have a girlfriend on the side plus visit the prostitute. So you'd have those three partners. And if you did not have those three partners, you were considered weird. We could talk about other sins in Corinth, but we're not going to do that yet. The Corinthian church should have been struggling against their culture. They should have been fighting the sin in their midst, convincing people to change, saying, hey, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, therefore let's live as a follower of Jesus Christ. But instead, they said, you know, Christ died for me, Christ loves me. I can do whatever he want, I want to do because I have freedom in him. I know he loves me no matter what. And I'm going to boast in my knowledge that he loves me. So they boasted. Instead of mourning over the sin, they boasted in it. And it got so bad that a man started sleeping with his stepmom. And not just once, but the grammar is saying it is a repeated action over and over and over again. This was what he was doing all the time. And everyone in the church knew it. Everyone in the city knew it. Everyone in the surrounding region knew it. All the way to several states away to where Paul was. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was shocked about it, except for the people in the church and the guy and the gal. Can you imagine a church getting so calloused to sin as to get to that point? of saying, yes, there's this thing happening, but I'm going to boast about it. I'm going to boast about my freedom. I'm going to boast about our inclusion. I'm going to boast about our love towards everyone. And we're going to lift up the person who is sinning in our midst. They should have felt like they were kicked in the gut. And they should have fallen on their face before a holy God crying out in pain for the sin that was in their midst. We should be able to sympathize because we live in America. And so often sin is in the midst of the churches. There are churches here in this county that exalt the sin that is in their midst and say, look at us, we are so inclusive. Look at us, we are so loving that we allow this to go on here. What is the purpose of the mourning that we're called to? When we see someone sinning, why should our response be mourning? The mourning reminds us and the person who sinned the seriousness of their action. It shows those who are looking into our church that yes, we do detest sin. And it protects us from following their footsteps. I think about Ezra. Ezra lived after the exile to Babylon and slowly people from Israel were trickling back from Babylon to the promised land. They're working on rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. They're working on rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They're working on rebuilding the religion, but unfortunately they had adopted so many of the sinful practices of the nations around a contributing factor to their adopting these sinful practices was that they were intermarrying with people from the nations around. They were saying, yes, we're Israelites, we're called to be holy, but that's okay, I will marry someone who is not a a follower of God. And you might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Anyone who is a follower of God, who marries someone who is not a follower of God, will start imitating that person instead of God. It's what happens. Ezra heard about these practices, and in Ezra chapter 9, verses 3 to 4, Ezra said, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my hair, head and my beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And he started to pray out loud in front of all these people around him. He started to confess the sins of the people and he was weeping before them because of the sin in the midst. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, Ezra says, well, Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. A large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around them. They too wept bitterly. This session of mourning over the sin of their nation started a revival in Israel. People started turning back to God. In fact, the nations sent representatives to the capital to recommit themselves to God and to set up a plan where they would not go back to these sins. All because Ezra and a small group of people mourned over the sin in their midst. The response to sin is not anger. The response to sin is not hatred. The response is mourning. Because we realize the weight of the sin. And we realize the result of the sin. Our heart breaks because of the pain that has been caused by this person's action and because of the brokenness that is in this person's future. Because they're going on this path of destruction. There is a lot of rejoicing this weekend because of the Supreme Court decision reversing Roe versus Wade and there should be rejoicing however we should still be in mourning because there are 50 states that allow abortion there's still 50 states that allow abortion Nebraska allows abortion up to 20 weeks so we should still mourn and cry because there's still work to be done what are we to mourn over Paul in this passage lists several sins. Verse 11 is the most complete of the list in this passage, but he has longer lists and other books. He talks about here the sexually immoral, which is a blanket term for anyone, for any sexual sin, from premarital sex to adultery to homosexuality to pornography. He talks about the greedy person, which is the person who is not content with what they have, He talks about the idolater, who is someone who worships other things rather than the one true God. He talks about the drunkard. This is a very interesting word. The word speaks not just of the act of getting drunk, but it speaks of the result of getting drunk. I like the song. It's a really good song. I kind of want to sing along with it. But I'm holding myself back. The result of getting, this is a person who gets drunk and allows the drink to control his actions, so that he's a jerk. That, all of that is condoned into this one word. Paul talks about the swindler. It's the person who cheat others. And then he talks about the slanderer. That's how the NIV translate this word, the slanderer. And I don't like that translation. The word speaks of someone. It describes someone who's continually tearing other people down with their words. A better translation, as some translations do, is verbally abusive, is what this word refers to. Paul condemns all of these actions here. Other passages, he condemns others, other actions. He firmly believes that the followers of Christ are called to be holy, and that sinful behaviors are not fitting for those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, claim to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, why should we live, continually live in a way that caused Jesus' death? Why should we want to do that? Now, in this list, he uses very interesting grammar. He's not talking about single actions. Single, someone who is one time is verbally abusive. One time is a drunkard. One time is is this one time is this it's not single actions we as humans will sin we will have it will happen single actions will happen to our shame there are some times we will act like a little kid and we'll just do it and in that times it's for us to repent and to turn back away from our sin Paul's grammar here is not speaking of single actions. His grammar is speaking of repeated action. He's speaking of someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ and who repeatedly lives a life of sin. Whatever the sin is, whether it's gossip or disobedience of parents or verbal abuse or sexual immorality, someone who's repeatedly doing this. Paul says when we come face to face with someone else's blatant, unrepented sin, we as a church are called to mourn. We should be crying crying because we understand the pain, we understand the brokenness, we understand the weight. I don't know if you've ever gotten into a car and you've driven by a cornfield and you've just itched to jump the fence or the ditch and go cut cookies in that cornfield. Anyone ever want to confess that? Okay, I got one person who raised their hand, couple other people, good. We could, you know, we could do an altar call if you want to. But that action, if you jump the ditch, you go into that cornfield and you cut cookies into it, has years worth of damage that happens there. The same thing happens with someone's sin. When someone blatantly, unrepentantly continues to sin within the church, there are years and decades of damage that happens in the life of the church and in that own person's life. God calls us to holiness, so we mourn. We mourn. Hopefully, when someone is faced with a whole church crying over their sin, he will repent and change his ways. That is the hope. Unfortunately, that doesn't often happen. Most of the time, we are sucked into our sin. We don't want to change. I've been there. I, I, I have been the one sinning and who did not want to change and did not know how to change. So, when faced by mourning, we keep sinning because, in the moment, it really feels good to do it. When that happens, God calls us as a church to still pursue holiness. So, in addition to our mourning, we are called to judge. We are called to judge. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 to 8, For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled, I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What does it mean that we judge? Yes, we mourn, but what does it mean that we add judgment to it? It means that we name the sin for what it is. It's amazing what happens if you sit down with a group of guys who are... uh, come together to help each other fight for internet purity. And how many times as they go around the circle and they talk about their life, how many times they don't say sin, but they say something else that they hoped meant sin. Like, you know, I fell today. I struggled over the weekend. I stumbled. I was going along and I sticked my toe and and, I just, I took it out right away. We as humans have a hard time saying, I sinned against God, I sinned against you, and my sin deserves the fires of hell. We have a hard time saying that. We want to soften the blow. We want to make ourselves feel better. But unfortunately, a soft blow does not push us towards holiness. I can say, you know, I struggled yesterday, meaning I sinned, But if I just struggled yesterday, it's okay for me to struggle tomorrow. Because everyone struggles, right? So we head right back into our sin, whatever that sin is. I find it interesting that King David was called a man after God's own heart. Have you ever wondered why he was called that? It's because when confronted by his sin, he didn't sugarcoat it. Instead, he repented and turned from it. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4 is his prayer to God. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, God, you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge me. That's what David said I his sin. Is that what we say? In our passage, Paul uses a very interesting illustration about leaven. He's not speaking of yeast here. Maggie and I have yeast in our refrigerator. It's nice and clean in a sealed jar. It's great. This is not yeast. This is leaven. He's speaking of sourdough leaven. When I was in seminary, my roommate cooked sourdough bread, and he had a jar of raw bread dough that he kept in the refrigerator. It was rancid it was discolored he opened it up and it smelled horrible the bread was great but this stuff was awful and it didn't take much just a little bit of bit of who knows what sort of mold was growing in there and you stick it in this lump of dough and that loaf really puffs up really good and you bite in it and you say you know i really like the taste but i really don't know what i'm putting in my stomach Paul says that our sin is like this discolored, rancid, moldy bit of bread starter. And we need to understand what it is and do something about it. God calls us to holiness. We must name the sin and we must judge it. Now, just as we as humans don't like to name our own sin and judge our own sin, so much more we don't want to turn to someone else and say, You're a sinner. I can do that to my father-in-law. But we don't want to name someone else's sin. It makes us uncomfortable. And we can throw any sort of excuse out there. We could actually be super spiritual and quote Jesus. Because everyone who is spiritual quotes Jesus. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We all boil that phrase, that whole passage down to I'm not called to judge. That's their sin. Judge not so you may be not judged. I'm not called to judge them. Jesus is talking about hypocrites. Hypocrites in this passage. Individuals who have never repented from their sin and they're trying to pick apart everyone else. That's what Jesus is talking about. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is speaking to a church that has been called to be holy and is brought together in a covenant to keep each other holy. To these people who have this covenant and responsibility before God, he says, are you not to judge those inside? Expel the wicked person from among you. We are called before God to name the sin that is in our midst, to call it out after we mourn over it. There is a process for calling this out. God has a process for everything. There's a process for it. Jesus details it in Matthew 18. It's interesting that all these people who quote Matthew 7 for why they shouldn't judge people, forget Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, you love them. No, that's not what he says. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their faults, just between the two of you. If they will not listen to you, if they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. When a community sees sin in its midst, we start privately. We go to them one-on-one. First, we mourned about it, but nothing's happening. So then we go to them one-on-one privately. We say, hey, this is sin. This is against God. It's, it's, it's digging you a huge hole that will only bring pain and suffering and misery to you. So please, for your sake, stop it. And if they say, no, I'm going to keep doing it, we bring a small group along. And we all say the same thing, saying, yes, hey, this is where the Bible says... What you're doing is wrong. This is how it's going to hurt you and your family. For your sake, please, stop it. And if they refuse to listen, we bring it through the whole church. We follow this process first because Jesus told us to. And we're good Christians. And as good Christians, we do what Jesus said. But secondly, because our goal is not to ridicule and shame the person who has sinned. Because that person's a brother or sister in Christ. And it could be us sitting there. It could very easily be us sitting there. And one small step, it will be us sitting there. So it's not for us to bring ridicule and shame to the person that could be us. Instead, our goal is to call them to repentance, to bring them to restoration, to say, hey, this path is leading to destruction. Come back so we can show you love, so that the pain and destruction will not be yours. Instead, blessing, come back. We don't want anyone to continue down the pain of path of sin. We want to save. We want to bring people back to truly following Jesus Christ. God calls us to holiness, so we mourn and then we judge. We name the sin for what it is. Many times, however, thankfully, not however, thankfully, when approached by someone about our sin, we will repent and turn from it because sometimes we don't realize what we're doing. And it takes a brother or sister to Christ to put their hand on her shoulder and say, hey, you really shouldn't be doing that. And when, when, when we hear that, we're like, thank you. I won't do that anymore. And so we don't. There's rejoicing and celebration when that happens. Most of the times it's not easy, but you get there. Sometimes, unfortunately, it does not work that way. And, and there's someone who's just stubborn in their sin. And they say, I will not change. I don't care what you say. You're a bunch of Puritans. You're a bunch of do-gooders. You don't know how to love people. I'm just going to follow in my path. Leave you over there. I'm going to be good. Over here, in my sin. God loves me even though you don't. In that moment, we are to do the drastic. God calls us to holiness, so we purge. We purge. Paul uses three pictures for this purging. First, he speaks of putting the man out of the fellowship. He says in verse 2, Are you proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? The picture is repeated more forcefully at the last verse, verse 13, when he says, Expel the wicked person from among you. When he talks about the fellowship, this is an understanding of who is a follower of Jesus Christ and who isn't. Those who are in the fellowship have confessed their to have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. They've proved that confession by following Jesus in public baptism. Because of their confession of faith, public baptism, they can join the activity of the church, namely uh, the Lord's Supper. They could take part in the teaching of the church, in the discipleship of the church. When someone is put out of the fellowship, they're treated as someone who is not a believer. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 18, verse 17. Matthew 18, verse 17, if they still refuse, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Someone who was put out of the fellowship couldn't take part in communion. They could not teach. They couldn't disciple others. Basically, everything that is kept from a non-believer would be kept from this person. It's a very drastic step. The second illustration that Paul uses is the metaphor of leaven, where he says, get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be new, unleavened batch. We take the sin, we throw it out of the dough. Paul is using this illustration uh, to show the seriousness of the sin in our midst. Old leaven will corrupt the taste of the bread, will corrupt the future breads that come, and if leaven is too old and put into bread, it will actually kill you. So... Note to the wise, if you've got old sourdough bread in your refrigerator for several years, throw it out. When that new leaven is thrown out, you make, when the old leaven is thrown out, you make new leaven. And so you can have fresh bread with great taste that will influence future breads for many years until you have to throw that leaven out. So it's a great, great, great illustration. When someone is sitting in the congregation, they will influence other people to sin. It will happen. So for the sake of the holiness of the assembly, for the sake of new Christians, for the sake of children who are very susceptible to have their lives changed for the worse, for the sake of everyone's consciences, the sinner must be removed before the entire church follows down this path of sin that leads to destruction and death, bringing God's judgment on everyone. Throw the leaven out. The third metaphor is found in verse 5. Verse 5. Paul says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. I don't have a lot of time to unpack this metaphor because I've taken too much time already. Anyone asleep? Thank you for the honesty. You will be my illustration next. (laughs) Basically, Paul is saying to this person who is sinning that they are to treat this person like a non-believer because they're acting like a non-believer. And so since they're acting like a non-believer, we treat them like a non-believer. We transfer them from the kingdom of God to Satan's kingdom. From the blessings and protection of God's family to all the horrors of those who are following Satan. We do this hoping that his flesh will be destroyed. Now, Paul, when he says of flesh, he's not referring to this person dying. He's not talking about a murder ceremony where he asks someone to come up to the church and we all stand in the aisles with knives and we slash him as he runs out. It's not what he's talking about. That was really graphic. Sorry. It's not what he's talking about. Paul, whenever he talks about the flesh, is referring to our sinful desires. We treat someone like a non-believer. We force them out of fellowship of Christ so that they will finally see the seriousness of their sin. So that hopefully they'll wake up and say, oh my goodness, look what my actions, look what it led to. This is really bad. I'm going to kill my sin, and come back. What does this look like practically? It means that we don't associate with these sinners. Paul's only referring to Christians here. He's not talking about the sinners who are not Christians, who are neighbors, possibly live in our own house. He's not talking like that we shun and, and we make this little commune and we all live here and keep everyone who's a sinner out. We're called to befriend all these people who are non-Christians. God is the one who judges them, we are the one who shows them love. But Christians who are repeatedly, blatantly sinning, who have seen us mourn and cry over their sin, who have heard our judgment, are naming their sin, but have not repented, these sinners, we treat them like non-believers. So how do you treat a non-believer? However you treat a non-believer, that's how you treat this person. Paul adds in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. We don't treat a sinning brother or sister as an enemy. We hold them accountable. We don't ostracize them, but we don't trust them with our kids. That's how it works. During times of Christian fellowship, we don't allow them to come. But during times of evangelism, come on! We do this so that they will feel ashamed, so that they will finally see the seriousness of their sin, that it is not okay for them to be blatantly living against God. Sometimes I tell my older kids, hey, if you want to act like a baby, I'll treat you like a baby. If someone wants to act like a non believer, I will treat them like a non believer. It's a big deal. And as a spiritual leader, it's a big deal for me. I am held to a high standard by God. And I, I'm expected to keep that standard myself. It's expected for me to be able to live my life in a way that says, hey, follow me so you can follow Christ. And if I do not hold a high standard for me, if like I will not allow myself to live like a non believer, I, I must hold myself to that standard. In the past, I've struggled with addiction. Some of you know that. I've gone through addiction counseling programs and 12-step groups and Bible studies about this addiction because I don't want this stuff in my life. I've collected accountability partners spread all throughout the United States and even into Canada so that I do not go into this sin. A couple weeks ago, about a month ago, I stopped into a church in Norfolk to an elder there who I really respect talked about my past and I said hey will you join my group of accountability partners because I need people who know who I am who hold me straight and true to this line of following Jesus Christ he gladly said he would we talked about it and then he stopped and he looked me square in the eye and he said now Peter you know that if I see you do something that disqualifies you from the ministry I will tell Brooke Curtis and I will tell your wife Are you okay with that? I said yes, because that's just what you say. (laughs) But uh, no, I was okay with that. And I was glad he said that. Because even when you're seeking accountability, even when you're seeking openness, even when you know the seriousness of your sin, you need someone to look at you and say, you know, sin is really serious. You need to be reminded of that. We need someone who's willing to hold us to the line of holiness for the sake of our lives, our families, and our ministries. And I know there are some people out here, there's a question going around your mind like, what in the world is he talking about? What is this sin that he struggled with in the past? What is this addiction? My sin is not a secret. If you want to know about it, we can talk. I'm just not going to talk about it right here. Make an appointment. We'll go into my office. We'll dim the lights. But if you want to know my past, if you want to know what Satan could use to rip me from ministry, I will tell you, willingly. And if I tell you, it is your job to hold me accountable to it. It's your responsibility then as well. God has called us to holiness. So we mourn the sin in our midst. We judge the sin in our midst. We purge the sin in our midst. All these steps lead up to restoration. We're going to talk more about restoration next week, but for now, it's when, when we repent, this cycle stops wherever it is. If, if we're sinning and people are mourning and we realize our sin, we repent, the, the, the process stops. We don't go into the judgment and the purging. Confession happens, and, and when confession happens, freedom comes. And we get to join our brothers and sisters in seeking holiness, supporting and strengthening each other until Christ following, following calls us home. The purpose is always restoration bringing people back so we can follow him shoulder to shoulder. This week, as we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we talked about the corporate responsibility, what we do when there's sin in our midst. Next week, we're going to talk about individual responsibility as we dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, And I'm looking forward to that one even more. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for being the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of love, The God of forgiveness, but also the God of righteousness, justice, and holiness. Thank you for looking down on us, sinful, horrible, miserable creatures stuck in our sin and sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, knowing that we could not do anything to change us. But you did everything. Thank you for calling us to faith in you. And the moment we do that, you start working in us to reflect you. It is a privilege and honor, Father, to be your child And to be on this path of holiness. Lord, you know how much I sin. But thank you for your conviction on my life. That you call me to repentance. And you give me the strength to do that. Lord, I pray that all of us would follow in that path. That you would knit us as Calvary Bible Church to be be a people who are holy. For the sake of your testimony in the area. Thanks, Father. Well, if you'll stand with me as we finish this morning with good